Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Well, I think we, um, a lot of people have a list of their favorite movies. You got, some, you got a favorite movie? Uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Anybody else like that movie? Yeah, right, okay, good. Well, you're my people. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a movie about a banker uh, named Andy who is wrongfully commit, uh, convicted of killing his wife. Uh, when in prison, uh, he befriends a guy named Red. Red was in prison because he actually did murder someone. They end up in prison for, for decades, striking up a long friendship, and uh, they have share all kinds of experiences. Andy, who did nothing to deserve being in prison, is always thinking about getting out. And during one occasion, Red, who believes he will never get out, says to Andy, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. Now, that viewpoint makes sense to a man who um, killed someone and received a, a life sentence and doesn't believe he's going anywhere anytime soon. But for Andy, hope was all he had. And so later in the movie... And since it was made in 1994, I think I can say that, spoiler alert, Andy escapes prison. Don't, don't, you should have watched it. He escapes prison and he writes uh, Red uh, once he's out, who, Red who's still in prison, and he invites Red to join Andy whenever uh, Red gets out. And Andy writes these words, remember Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. For the church, for the body of Christ, for, for you and me, hope is a good thing. And while the Apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthians, he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Though he writes that, hope still makes the top three. Because one day, we won't need faith and hope, and all we'll have and all we'll need is love. 
But Red's correct. Hope is a dangerous thing, but not for the reasons that he uh, believes. Hope is dangerous because it keeps us going when we don't want to keep going, when all seems lost. It doesn't matter how hard the struggle is. When we have hope, we, we keep going. Hope enables us to look past the moment and to look ahead to a promised future. Even when all seems dark, hope helps us to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Hope is what the prophet Isaiah is offering to God's people in Isaiah chapter 9. And boy, do they need it. Because Isaiah, the prophet, has just unleashed on them all the judgment of God because of their sin and disobedience. And Isaiah is going to share more of that judgment later uh, in the next few chapters. But here in chapter 9, Isaiah sort of stops and he offers God's people hope. Yes, they're going to experience judgment. Yes, the Assyrians are going to invade. Yes, God's people are going to be in exile. But, verse 2 says this, But in the future, he, God, will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. B-U-T, but. It's a great word in the Bible. It always comes in just the right places. When God is about to tell us something awful, usually because of our sin and our disobedience, he often follows it with a but. That's just how his heart works. We are unfaithful, but God is faithful. We are sinful, but God saves sinners. We are in darkness, but the light is coming. That's the gospel. But just like we have uh, been in a season of waiting during the season of Advent, leading up to tomorrow with Christmas and the season of Christmas, God's people in Isaiah's day had to wait for this hope. Judgment was coming first, then the hope of salvation. However, what's interesting about our passage in Isaiah is that this promise of hope is written as if it's already happened. This this is prophecy, meaning it's uh, talking about something to come in the future, but the future is here in this chapter as something which has already happened. This is not a maybe from God. This is an assurance. God is saying to them, and he's saying to us, that their hopeful future in Christ is already complete. The victory is already won. And God's not asking them for anything. He's telling them what's coming. All that they've got to do is see it by faith. Because the eye of faith sees what God is doing behind the present bitter circumstances. It sees the light and the darkness. Even today, we have two options. We can look at our world, and we can see the mess. It's messy. We can see the darkness. And we can choose to find only hopelessness and shattered dreams and conclude that God has forgotten us. If you're watching cable news, that's where you are right now. Okay? Or, or we can look at our present darkness and we can remember. We can remember God's past mercies, remember his present grace, and his future promises. Because, yes, the the darkness is real. But the darkness isn't the realest reality. Behind even the darkest of nights stands the bright light of Christ. 
Verse 2 describes the light. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I want you to notice that they're walking in the darkness. They don't just see the darkness. They feel it. They're walking in it. They, 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 they are inside it. Who are these people walking in the darkness? Well, verse 1 told us that he will honor Galilee of the nations. Everybody enjoys a geography lesson, so here you are this morning. Israel was and is hemmed in on the east and the west by the sea and the mountains. And so whenever a foreign army attacked Israel, they went to Galilee in the north. The nations entered there. Galileans didn't just have a tough day. They had a tough life. They knew what it was to suffer. Isaiah is telling God's people, he's saying that hope would come first to those who suffered the most. Those who took the brunt of every invasion would be the first to see the light dawning out ahead. As we look and we turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, where does Jesus begin his ministry? That was a rhetorical question. Galilee. I forgot it was a rhetorical question. Galilee, chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Those walking in darkness found themselves ushered into the light of Christ. Jesus went to Galilee first, Matthew says, so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Jesus was saying that he is the light of Isaiah 9. Now, Isaiah says that the light spreads. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. This remnant in God's care grows and grows and grows until we, we look to Revelation, and it says that a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We get to Revelation, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 and the promise that God makes to Abraham that he would multiply his children into a nation of people, that he, he could he, he, be so many people, it'd be more than the stars in the sky or the sands on the beach. From Abraham to all tribes and peoples and tongues, God is keeping his promise. God takes a suffering remnant and he grows it into this global family which you and I are part of. No wonder that as the light spreads, the joy spreads too. As the light spreads, the gloom and the darkness are replaced by the joy of rejoicing. Our passage says, you have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
So what is this joy? Isaiah is using, he's using two metaphors. One of farmers at a harvest, a, a big payout for all the work, like a Christmas bonus you didn't expect. Second, the joy of, of soldiers dividing the spool, the joy of victory after battle. But this is important. They, the farmers and the soldiers, didn't do anything to achieve this. They didn't accomplish it through their hard work. In fact, they didn't have a hand in it at all. Notice the first two phrases of verse 3 begin with you. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. All the activity is on God's side. God does it. His people rejoice. God plants and his people harvest. God fights and his people get the spoils. God's people walked in darkness, but the hope of Christmas shines bright beyond their circumstances. But how does that hope come? Well, verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with the word for. In other words, here's how the hope just described is coming. Look at verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. What does this mean? Well, God wants to illustrate the kind of surprising victory he's going to achieve. Do you remember who Gideon is? He was an unlikely hero. Gideon goes back to the book of Judges, and uh, uh, God's people were in this cycle of, of sin and disobedience, and uh, God would allow another nation to rule them cry out to God. God would raise up a judge to defeat the enemies. They live in a time of peace, but then they'd go back to their sin, disobedience, and on and on and on. Well, God's people are ruled at this point by, by the Midians. And so uh, God wants to raise up Gideon, but the thing is, Gideon doesn't want the job. You ever felt like God called you to something and you didn't want to do it? We first see him uh, beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. And an angel of the Lord comes to, to Gideon, and he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Pretty funny. Typically, mighty men of valor don't hide from their enemies. When, when Gideon got around to agreeing to, Okay, God, I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. God gives him a, a, an army of 32,000 soldiers to the defeat the Midians, except he windles that down to 300 men. Why? To prove that the battle was not Gideon's or, or, or Israel's, but it was the Lord's. That God can win against impossible odds. Gideon shouldn't have won, but his little army in God's mighty hands called such a panic among the Midianites that they begin to turn on each other and they kill each other. That's the kind of surprise victory that God is promising in Isaiah 9. But, he, but he's not going to stop there. Look at verse 5. It says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for fire. God it will not only win the war, but God will end war itself. Come on, Lord, help that make that so now, right? We're in, a, we're in a day and age with war over here and war over here. 
But Isaiah is promising that the warrior will no longer need his boots, that there will be no garments of blood, that it will all be put to an end. And how is it going to be put to an end? Not by Israel's strength, but by God's. This victory is not their accomplishment, nor is it ours. It is God's. We get to celebrate his victory as if it's our victory, because in Christ, by grace, it is. Now we get to verse 6, the climax. What we find finally is the answer to all that has ever made us afraid. Every anxiety we've carried, every fear we've nursed, every difficulty we face is answered in one single person, a child. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince This is not what we expect, is it? It may be for us who've grown in the church and we know Jesus comes as a child, but if you're just reading this for the first time, if you're an Israelite and you're thinking, God's going to bring the victory and he's going to do it through a baby? There is nothing more, nothing weaker than a human child. Animal offspring are far more self-sufficient than a human baby. Think about baby sea turtles. Kristen and our family, we like to go to Sanibel Island. It's a little island on the bottom edge of Florida. And whenever we go, we always see these, these marked off stakes because there's a, 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 a nest. Uh, the turtle, is that what you call it, a nest? Lord have mercy. Um, and they have, it's where they, they've laid their eggs, turtles. And they're just trying to protect. Nobody would step around them. But sea turtles, they hatch on the beach, and immediately they are thrust in a life and death race to the water. Before they even have time to look around and enjoy the world, they're like, I got to get to the water. But a human child? Got three of them, I know. They lay in a crib. They cry for milk. Diaper change, they sleep for 20 hours, not in a row. <laughs> They're utterly vulnerable. Anything could happen, and, and they would have no defense. How is it that when God chose to wage war on the world, he sent a baby? In what universe does that make any sense at all? What's God doing? What's he thinking? I know one, he's overturning our expectations. God has ordered the world such that weakness overcomes power. Foolishness overcomes wisdom. A child defeats all evil. It's unlikely, it's improbable, it's an incredible story when everything else in the world fails, when all our best plans are found wanting, when we've reached the very end of what we can do, unto us, a child is born. There's a baby in a manger to make it all right. We sure do like to think that we're all strong and mighty. 
that we're capable of conquering it all on our own, especially collectively more. Man, we could. But it turns out God doesn't need us at all. We need him. And in this child, we have him. The baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah says that the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that the government of this world does not rest on our shoulders, but on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus is Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He rules and reigns over all. Don't forget, he created it. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus governs with wisdom. We're not his counselor, he's ours. He governs with strength. He's not just any child, he's also Almighty God. Jesus governs as a father. He cares for us with the affection of a tender father. Jesus governs in peace, peace at every level, vertically with God, horizontally, horizontally with each other. Our passage, our scripture this morning is the story of how God wins our salvation for us. Our lives are hard. They're really hard. Our sin is great. It is really great. Our need is immense, so immense. But God's grace in Christ is greater. There's no end to his supply for our need. That's why Isaiah, verse 7, says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. You know what that means? That means that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The reign of Christ will not come and be, it will come and increase. He will not rule only Israel, this small little country in ancient Near East. He will rule the world. He will rule the galaxy. He's going to rule the cosmos. Everything. And his rule will not be like that of the Assyrians who have war after war after war. Once he conquers all evil, it will be one of peace. His kingdom spreads through peace, and of that peace there will be no end. There's not any pockets of rebellion. His victory will be total and complete. His kingdom has no end. It fulfills all promises. When established, it's upheld, it's just and righteous, and it will last forever. Jesus is the perfect king. A king of justice and peace without end. If we accept Jesus as our great king, we have nothing to fear in him. He will always be for us, no matter how great or small we are. In fact, the smaller, the better. The needier, the better. The humbler, the better. Jesus is the King and Savior to all who need him. Look at verse 7. The end of verse 7. This is, this is the seal of the promise. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you know what this means? It means that God's passion for his own glory is driving this. He's not getting tired of saving. He is just getting started. 
The more he has to triumph over evil, the more his grace is seen and known. The needier you and I are for his mercy, the greater his desire is to provide. Like a father with a child who loves for no other reason than because he loves the whole, all, holy, holy, eternal, everlasting Father, God loves you with all of his massive heart. That's why he gave his child, and that child went to the cross, because greater love has no one than this, than one who will lay down his life for his friends. So here's what Christmas ultimately means. The promise of a light shining in the darkness. A child given to us. Hope. In the end, there are only two groups of people. There are those who need this child and those who don't. If you're doing just fine on your own, if you win victory after victory with no trouble at all, if you don't see the darkness because your future is so bright you need to wear shades, then maybe the gospel's not for you. Maybe you need to first experience the darkness. But if you feel the darkness, if you're weary, if you need rest, if you mourn and long for comfort, if you feel worthless and you wonder if God even cares, if you fail and desire strength, if you sin and you need a Savior, if you are hopeless, then the light is for you. Listen, we don't deserve the light. We just receive it. Here's how we do that. When Jesus came to Galilee so long ago to fulfill the promise in Isaiah 9, he opened his ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was an invitation to all who have, have a pile of broken dreams, unkept promises, disordered desires, shattered hopes, and a pile of sins that you can't believe that you've committed. The entry into his glorious kingdom, into his marvelous light, is as simple as needing Jesus. You might be an absolute mess, but you can be Jesus' mess. He would love that. He would absolutely love that. By coming to us in Christ as this little baby, God has put his salvation so low that anyone can reach it. There's just really only one catch. You have to lay down your pride that a little baby can save you. Maybe this Christmas more than ever before, we need to accept with empty hands of faith, hope, and love the overwhelming grace of God. Maybe this Christmas you need to stop trying so hard to save yourself and instead let the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, do it for you. As Andy put it, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Remember, I love you. God loves you. Amen. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that the light of the world has come, that Christ has come, that you have sent your Son to rescue us and to save us. Lord, I pray that each one of us here would recognize our own need for you. Lord, that we would let down any uh, pride that we have, any thoughts that we have that we can do it all. Lord, that we would receive the light of Christ in our own lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.